Good morning. I'd like to welcome everybody. We're going to continue in our study in James. A very, very insightful study, a very, very difficult study, because as we have down here in front, uh, which my wife has enjoyed every week, she's like trying to move out of the way because she has to look at herself in that mirror. Uh, Because God takes us through James, or through the letter of James, and places us in front of a mirror and says, now I want you to take a look at your behavior. I want you to take a look at your life as compared to what a godly man or woman is supposed to live. And so it's hard, and it's difficult, and, and it goes against our culture, it goes against our society, it goes against who we are sometimes as persons, but it's something that God wanted us to know. And I want to open today by uh, referring to a phone call that I got a number of years ago. Uh, I was in my house studying when I received a call from Barry. He was a small business owner in Kutztown, PA, and I was the chaplain for his company. For a couple of years, I've been doing weekly Bible study with his employees and praying with them when life, their lives got tough. Barry asked me if I could come right over and talk to Ken. He was struggling. He was at a place in his life where Ken was one of his employees that he, he was asking questions about God and about salvation. And so I went over and had a, a long conversation with Ken. And as the conversation ensued, uh, Ken understood his need for Jesus Christ and accepted him as a savior, professed faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of times as a pastor, we see people make professions of faith, and sometimes we become a little jaded because we are around it a lot more than than folks normally are. And we see people make professions of faith, but then we see no change. We see nothing change in their life. We see no growing desire to, to, uh, for spirituality and, and to obey what God wants in His Word. And, and so sometimes we become jaded. And I was even at that point with Ken, not saying that he was a bad guy or anything, but you always wonder when he prays, it, was his life really changed? And uh, I can confidently say that I have no doubt that Jesus Christ changed Ken's heart that day. Why? Because his behavior changed. Not because he came to church on Sunday morning with his family, but because of things that were happening in his life where he had to make choices on his own and not have me hold his hand. And that was very, very encouraging. One of the first things that I noticed or that I found out about is he said, Mark, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. He goes, I am just, I don't know what to do. I said, Ken, what's going on? He was really upset. He goes, well, yesterday on the way home, I stopped by the gas station and filled up and then drove off without paying for the gas. I said, probably not a good idea. And he said, but that's not the problem. He says, I, do it on a, I have done it over a regular basis over the last number of years. He said, but this time, I can't get it out of my mind. It's not right. It's wrong. He goes, it's not what God would want me to do, and I know that. He goes, what should I do? And I said, do you really want to know? And he goes, yes. I said, you need to go talk to the gas station owner. Well, if I do that, he could put me in jail. He could have me arrested. He could, you know, all that. And I said, what choice do you have if you're going to follow what Christ wants you to do? He goes, I got to think about this. And so... He came back about a week later and said, I'm going to go do this. Please pray for me. So he went and turned himself into the gas station owner. And the owner said, I'm not going to press charges because he paid for the gas then. He goes, but you ever do this again? He says, I'll have your butt thrown in jail. And he came back to me and he went, (gasps) and he goes, but why did it bother me so much this time? I don't understand. And I said, because God's changed your heart. Another time, he came to me and he said, I can't come to this church anymore. And I went, what's going on? He goes, "Um, I I don't respect Pastor Nate anymore. And he says, I can't do that. I can't look at him. I can't. And I said, okay. I said, explain to me what happened. And he did. And I said, what does God want you to do? Leave. I said, no, (laughs) that's not what God wants you to do. I said, what's the scripture say? The scripture says, go and talk to that person. And let's go through a process that most of you know is Matthew 18. He goes, I can't tell Pastor Adam that. I said, do you think Pastor Adam was wrong? I mean, Pastor Nate, not Adam, sorry. 
Pastor Nate. He goes, I can't talk to him. He's the pastor. I can't tell him that. And I said, you most certainly can. And I didn't tell him whether he was wrong or right. I didn't want to interfere with that. And he, he said, ah, oh, got to go pray about it. A couple weeks later, he said, can you help me? And I said, what do you want me to do? He says, I need to get together with Pastor Nate. I said, sure. And I said, so why don't you come over to my house on this day? And he said, okay. He wasn't sure what was happening. He didn't know that Pastor Nate and I had our normal pastoral meeting. And so Ken knocked on the door. I opened the door, and his eyes got really big because Pastor Nate was already there. And I said, Pastor Nate, Ken needs to talk to you, and I left. <laughs> and you should have seen the look on, on Ken's face. And as they sat down, Pastor Nate looked at him and said, you know something? I was wrong. What I did and how I did it was wrong. Thank you, Ken, for coming to me. You see, Ken was not that type of man. Ken was always one that was kind of volatile, was always kind of uh, reactive, and this was completely out of character for Ken. But God changed his life. Why did I take time to share Ken's story with you? Because he is one example of many proofs throughout church history, throughout human history, that the truths we've been looking at in James's letter to his dispersed flock. Remember, he's writing to a flock that had been run out of Jerusalem because of persecution. And James has been very clear about this same thing, that when someone is genuinely saved through faith in Jesus Christ, when their hearts have really been changed, their behavior changes every time. Every time. There's not an option. Sometimes the change is really, really quick. Sometimes the change is slower. But what will you always find in somebody whose heart has been changed by Jesus Christ? A very, very different life. A very different life. A very different behavior. And this is why our study in the book of James is so important because James is a pastor who is concerned about a flock that has gone to live in a pagan society. There were not other Christians there. It was before Christianity spread a whole lot. And so he was worried about these. He was concerned, pastoral concern about his flock and about what they were going to encounter in these pagan societies. And he was going to say, listen, you're new Christians and you need to understand behavior patterns that Christians exhibit if they have been changed by Jesus Christ. And these behavior patterns are for every person here who has claimed faith in Jesus Christ. It is not like Zoe gets uh, you know, this type of behavior pattern and uh, uh, June gets this behavior pattern and somebody else says, well, that's not my behavior pattern because it's my personality. The issue is no, everybody changes some faster, some slower in every area of their life. They're going to start mimicking similar behavior patterns because they have the Holy Spirit living within them who is going to direct what? All these behavior patterns. These are for all of us. And so far, as he's laid out these behavior patterns, some of the things that we've already seen as we've gone through this, uh, a person's ability or a Christian's ability to endure trials in a way that is just against culture, ability to deal with temptations in a way that most people don't understand, an ability to be quick to hear and slow to speak, which we really need in our world today, don't we? Just look, just look at social media. And then the ability to be doers of God's word. A lot of people say, hey, I'm a Christian. Hey, I believe in God. Hey, I believe all this stuff. The problem with that is if you're not doing what you say you believe, then you really don't believe. That's the bottom line. Every single person here, if you really believe something, does it direct how you behave? Absolutely. If you are a Gamecocks fan, is your behavior about football directed by you wanting to be, by you being a Gamecocks fan? Yeah, because you wear what? I was going to say maroon, but I would be really in trouble. You wear garnet and black. If you are a Clemson fan, does that direct how you behave? Absolutely, because you wear that orange stuff. And it's not just by what you wear, but you talk to your families about it, you watch games, you make food for it, you raise your, you indoctrinate your children because you believe that Clemson or Carolina is the best. When we believe something, it changes our behavior. When we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior that we sang about earlier, it's going to change how we behave. And if it doesn't change how we behave, then we really don't believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior or our 
claim to that is false. And we have to understand that. And that's what we've seen all the way through. So it's this idea about being able to do God's Word, not just talk about it. And this morning, James will continue to help us look more at life behaviors that begin to change when our hearts are changed by faith in Jesus Christ. So everybody turn with me, please. To James chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible, it's in the Pew Bibles in front of you, uh, the red book in front of you, it's on page 1290, and we're going to read James uh, from James chapter 3. Uh, if you're not familiar with how the Bible works, the big numbers are, uh, are the chapters and the small numbers are the verses, and so we're going to start reading today in James chapter 3 verse 13, so please do me a favor and stand as we read God's Word. We're going to start in James chapter 3 verse 13. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle, uh, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness that is shown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to you this morning, we thank you so much for the, the privilege we have of meeting here, uh, the privilege of we have of being uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, being able to just challenge our minds. Father, help us to be open to what you have to say, change our hearts, help us to just really think about the truths and how they apply to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. This is going to be something this morning that you're kind of, it's, it's odd. We've been talking a lot about things that we do, and t- today we're talking about wisdom. Wisdom is just not a popular concept in our culture today. The ruling concept in our culture is knowledge. Get as much knowledge as you can, Get as much schooling as you can. And there's nothing wrong with that. Do we need to be gain knowledge? The Bible says that in a number of different places. We don't have time to go into that this morning. The problem with that is if we have knowledge and we don't have wisdom, we can use that knowledge in a bunch of different ways, good or bad. And so he's going to talk about wisdom this morning. And what is odd about that is in his discussion about wisdom, we're going to find out that wisdom is a behavior. And most of us don't equate that. Wisdom is actually a behavior, and he's going to help us be understand that. I like how Alexander Begg put this quote about uh, wisdom here. I'm just going to read it for you. True wisdom, like true faith, is practical. It is very observable because the wisdom that James is addressing here is the endowment of heart and mind from God, giving us all that is necessary for right conduct as a re- result of right thinking. That is what you have in Romans chapter 12. Be transformed by the renewing of our minds or your minds. How will we know the nature of our wisdom in our practical living out of such a life? Wisdom has feet. Wisdom has action. Wisdom goes to places. If you want to be a wise person, you need to know God. If you want to be a wise person, you need the Bible. This is Alistair Begg said about this passage. And I think it's a fitting quote. Throughout Scripture, uh, we find that wisdom is not simply a matter of having factual knowledge about something, but the ability to effectively apply that knowledge to everyday life influenced by God's Word. It's not just us thinking about how it needs to be used. It's not just about how we feel and think that the, the knowledge needs to be used, but it is how God thinks the knowledge should be used, how God has laid out the world to work, how God has made His creation to work. And so that's a major key in today's world because we have people who do have wisdom in the world, and we're going to find out some more about that today. But their wisdom is more often than not self-centered, focused on them, focused on mankind, and not focused on God and bringing glory to God. And that's a, that's a significant issue for us as Christ followers because we don't live and breathe for ourselves. We live and breathe for whom? God and for what he says, and what he wants us to have in our lives, and for what he has designed us for. Throughout Scripture, we find that there is two types of wisdom, godly or true wisdom, and earthly or what we would call false wisdom. And James takes this truth 
in our passage and shows us that the kind of wisdom a person possesses, godly wisdom or earthly wisdom, will be revealed in how they live. And Tammy this morning read a chapter that is often preached on Mother's Day. And by the way, congratulations to all the mothers here. That passage says, this is a great wife. This is what God thinks a wife should be. And as you read through there, we don't have time. Oh, you need to look at it, ladies. Because it's not just being barefoot and pregnant at home. That's not what God wants. That's not what God has intended. And so go back and read that portion starting at verse 10. Oh, by the way, she read verse 1 because it was written from a mom to her son and saying, you need to find a good wife. And then she goes on to describe what this good wife is. And in that, we find out that she, is, she has a family. She has children. That's part of God's plan. She is married and has a husband. We find out that she buys fields and plants a vineyard, that she brings in her own income. We find she does a whole lot of things. And everything that we find in that list, including the idea of wisdom, which is mentioned in that passage, all equates to what God says, this is what somebody who believes in me looks like. This is what a, a wife, this is what a mother, this is what a woman looks like and what I created her to be. And so her life, what we see in Proverbs chapter 31, is something that we all aspire, men in their way, women in their way. That's what we aspire to become, what God has created us to be, what God has created us to do. That's what we aspire to be. And we see that really good example. And this was a wise woman because she did what? became what God created her to be. And so we begin our passage this morning in verse 13, and this is a test of wisdom. And what we see in verse 13 is a test of wisdom. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Our verses this morning, all right, continue the warning all the way back in chapter 3, verse 1, which we're not going to go there. This is in the context that we always need to keep it in context. We don't want to just pull Scripture out and use it however we want. In the context, James is writing to teachers. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should want to become teachers because teachers are going to be held to a very, very high level. But as that discussion goes through, and as he talks to teachers, he also uh, uses phrases like us and all, which we understand to mean that he is addressing teachers, but he is also applying these principles to whom? Everybody, not just the teachers. And so this is a continuation of this. And he's saying, teachers, you, do teachers claim to have wisdom? They better, because if they're not, they shouldn't be teaching, right? They need to have wisdom in how to disseminate that knowledge to their students, right? You can have all kinds of knowledge. You can be a math teacher, and you can start teaching algebra to three-year-olds. How good is that going to work out? You need to have the wisdom to know what? Three-year-olds aren't going to understand that. But can three-year-olds start learning to count? Amen. And so as teachers, he says, you need, you're going to claim to have wisdom. And he goes, if you claim to have wisdom, let's talk about wisdom. And that's what we see here in verse 13. James's question is to the point. It's a test. If you think you are wise and have understanding, prove it by looking at your conduct or behavior. If you think you're wise, if you claim to have wisdom, then prove it by how you act. As I thought about this, I came to realize that not many people see themselves as being unwise or foolish. One commentator put it this way, it's far hard to find a self-professing fool. How many of you are going to call yourself foolish. How many of you will honestly look at me or somebody or look in the mirror and look at yourself when you're not in a bad mood? All right, just normal day in. There is a foolish, foolish person. All of us, we're not going to say that, are we? Because we all, especially the older we get, we all begin to think that we have a certain amount of wisdom, all right, because we've lived life. So there are very, very few self-professing fools out there. And so this applies to all of us because all of us profess to be wise to some extent or another. And as he says, so if you are professing to be wise, which includes whom? Everybody here, to some extent. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Prove it. 
And you know what proves it, he says, is how you act, how you behave, how you respond to life, how you respond to in your town, how you respond at work, how you respond in your marriage, how you respond with relationships. He goes, that proves whether you're a wise person or not. And so as we think about this, if a wise person, let's go back for a minute here and remember the definition of a godly wisdom. It was in that vague quote. Wisdom is the empowerment of heart and mind from God, giving us all that is necessary for right conduct as a result of right thinking. Wisdom is the endowment of heart and mind from God, giving us all that is necessary for right conduct as a result of right thinking. If the uh, wisdom a person uses to decipher how to live life is from a worldly perspective, not from God, then it will always be foolish in the long run. If the wisdom a person uses to decipher how to live life is from a worldly perspective and not from God, then it will always be foolish in the long run. And this is what James is trying to help us understand. And this is why James encourages his readers to prove what they believe about their being wise by examining their conduct. And this, I like how NIV, the New American Standard Version, translates uh, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's the question we're talking about. Let them show up by their good life, by deeds done, and the humility that comes from wisdom. The word humility that we see here is sometimes translated as meekness or as gentleness in other translations, and they all fit. They're all good. They're not uh, sinful or anything like that. But the one I like best is this idea of meekness, which is what we see in the the ESV. And that word there is meekness. And the idea of meekness uh, is often misunderstood in our culture because uh, there's not many men here who would want to be labeled or considered as meek and mild. We'd almost take that as a hit, okay? You know, that bruises our ego a little bit. The problem with that is, especially back in the day of James, this was a compliment. Because, see, the idea of meekness is not that somebody steps on you or somebody has power over you. The idea of meekness here is power under control. I have power to do something. I have power that has been given to me by God. Uh, I have power because of my life or because of my experience. I have power in my life, but I'm going to choose very wisely how to use it. A good example of that is a horse. How much is the power of a wild horse beneficial to man? Not much, until they have been broken. And once they are broken, what you have is a meek horse. It's a horse that has power under control. Who was the most meek person to ever have existed on this planet? Jesus Christ. He was God, God in the flesh. How powerful was God? How much did Jesus Christ portray that power? They said he was as a lamb to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. He was accused and he did not answer. He was innocent and did not defend. Because he knew what was going on. It was power under control. Meekness or gentleness is a God-honored character trait. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It is never bitter, malicious, self-seeking, self-promoting, arrogant, or vengeful. And it characterizes everyone who claims to be a Christ follower. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, that's that same word, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who keep their power under control. Blessed are those who behave in a way that they can do something, but they don't always show their power. They use it in a way that benefits others and not themselves. What a challenging test. If you and I want to really find out if we're living wise lives, we must ask ourselves, does my life show good works done in the meekness of my heart based on godly wisdom? That's a tough idea. James continues describing what this sound wisdom looks like by contrasting false or earthly wisdom with true or godly wisdom. And as you look at verse 14, just for a second, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now jump down to verse 17. But the wisdom from above, which is godly wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable and gentle and open to reason. He is going to compare earthly wisdom, which is false wisdom, with godly wisdom, which is true wisdom. And so let me read verses 14 through 16. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And what we see here is that false wisdom is founded on man's own understanding. It is earthly, and we're going to talk about that here in just a minute, about man's own uh, understanding, man's standards, man's objective. Man, for earthly wisdom, is the object. He is the supreme focus. God's sovereign will and God's truth doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. And that's what false wisdom is. It is man-centered. Man is the focus. Man determines what he or she will do. Man determines what is right or wrong. And he has, there is no outside influence except what somebody thinks on the inside. In verse 14, we find that James identifies the motivation of false wisdom. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. The heart is the source of what motivates us. Would everybody agree to that? What's in your heart is what motivates us to do something. It is where belief originates. Let me take you th- to Romans 10.9. This is where belief in Christ begins. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe where? In your heart, okay, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Where does all this start? Where does belief in Jesus Christ start? In the heart. And then we also see in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. What also comes out of the heart? Evil. It just depends on who you are. And then we, uh, Solomon in Proverbs warns us about this. He says this, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the what? Springs of life. What does it mean, springs of life? We can say the paths of life. We can see that the, this is where we're going. This is what directions. Our streams are directed by what? Their banks, correct? And so what directs us in our lives? Our heart. It becomes our banks. It directs where we go. And what comes out of our hearts defines who we are. In verse 14, James mentions two common heart motivations of false wisdom. He mentions two false heart motivations of false wisdom. Bitter jealousy is the first one. Bitter jealousy. And this is the harsh, cutting, and destructive jealousy that has no concern for the feelings or welfare of those who are directed by it. It is those who are engulfed in self-serving worldly wisdom and bitter jealousy comes when anybody or anybody else gets in the way of what I want to do. Now, I will guarantee that there are people who are sitting back and they're going like this. I don't have bitter jealousy. I'm good to go. No problem. The problem with that is how many of you have it in your hearts? How many times have you reacted or gotten what we call snarky? How many times have we made inappropriate remarks while we're driving because somebody pulls in front of us. Because when somebody pulls in front of us, are we thinking about us or the person in front of us who pulled in front of us? You got in my way. Get out of it. Why are you not going the speed limit? You are going to cause me to be late to this appointment. You see, is that bitter Yeah, because who's the focus? Me. It gives me the right to rail on. It gives me the right to speak about. It gives me the right sometimes to act out uh, physically in ways that are not appropriate because somebody got in my way and what I planned and what I want to do, and I am jealous for myself. That's what bitter jealousy is. And so as we think about that, most of us here cannot be let off the hook. We can't, because we want to limit bitter jealousy to the jealousy that causes what? Murder and and damage. Does does it cause that too? Absolutely. But that's not the context that James is writing in here. A closely related motive to bitter jealousy is selfish ambition. And this is actually the, 
the basis of this bitter, bitter, of the bitter jealousy. It's the basis for bitter jealousy. It's selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? What's selfish ambition? Think about that. It's what I want to get, have happen to me in my life and nobody else better get in the way. I mean, how many of us deal with this every day? And we can look at bitter jealousy. We can look at other things. Selfish ambition is any endeavor done for personal gain with no consideration for others or at the expense of others. It has no room for others. Now, not all of us can be as selfish as we could be because of our sin. But have all of us within our lives dealt with selfish ambition? We're going to lay somebody else aside because I want the promotion. I'm going to do what I have to do to get get the promotion. I'm going to lay aside uh, my family, my husband or my wife, because of something that I want. I'm going to treat somebody like this because uh, they're in my way and it's not what I want. Many of our sports heroes, celebrity icons, and worldly role models that our kids and even ourselves just laud for what they have accomplished have a heart motivation that is selfish ambition. If you read some of the stories throughout history, if you read biographies of men and women who have become very, very influential, very, very powerful, how many of them got there because of selfish ambition? Probably most. Probably most. How many of us have maybe doctored a resume just a little bit to make us look better than what we are? Selfish ambition, because if we do that and somebody doesn't get a job because of that, who are we thinking about? Us at their expense. Most of the time we don't know what the outcome is of that, but it's the same hard attitude. A person whose heart has been changed by faith in Jesus Christ is not marked by such selfish arrogance. It doesn't mean that we never do it. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with it but it means that we start growing and we start understanding. And the older that I get, okay, the more that I understand what this means. When I was younger, I liked things my way. And I would argue to the nth degree that I was right, and most very rarely was I wrong in anybody's eyes, or in my own eyes. I've grown through it. I'm not as bad as what I was. But the idea is, okay, the more wisdom that we gain, the more that we live, we begin to understand, all right, that who I am in Christ, that shouldn't be part of my life, and I start changing my life. And so James is clear. He sets the mirror in front of us, that mirror here. Anyone who claims to belong to God and to have wisdom of God, but their life is motivated by and characterized, it's a, a life trait. It's looking at your life from 10,000 feet. It's not what I did last week. It's not what I did uh, yesterday or two years ago. It's, is this a characteristic of my life? But if their life is motivi- motivated and characterized by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, there's no way they can be assured of their salvation. There's no way they can be assured that their hearts have been changed by Jesus Christ if that is a mark of their lives. And so then James moves on to help us uh, understand the characteristics of false wisdom. And he does this in verse 15. Look at verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. One of the first things we understand, okay, is this wisdom that he's talking about that, uh, that we've been discussing, okay, does not come down from above. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's false wisdom. It does not come down from above. And he actually goes on, okay, in verse 15, he says, does not come down from above. And now he's going to give us how it's defined. Three things. First, it is earthly. False wisdom is earthly. And what we mean by that is it's limited to this present world, this present time and space. It is restricted to things man can discover and accomplish by himself. There is no place for God or the things of God. This earthly wisdom pervades our culture and is found in education, politics, economics, and every other dimension and aspect of our contemporary, contemporary human life. 
And you say, how do we know this? How do we know it's earthly? How do we know it's, it's limited to earth and it doesn't take into account God and how he created the world and stuff like this? Let me give you some slogans. How many people here have heard the phrase, do your own thing? What is that? Earthly. Do my own thing. When I am doing my own thing, what am I focusing on? Me. And what does doing my own thing usually relate to? Things that are happening around me where? On earth. How about this? Have it your, what? Finish it. Have it your own way. Have it your own way. Doesn't make it, there's no place for God in that, is there? There's no place for His Word. There's no place for His creation and how He made it. It is, I'm going to have it my way, and that's the way I want it, no matter what. Do we see this in our children today? Tammy is in charge of our ASP. Tammy, do you see this in our little kids, in our ASP? We put out food for them because many of them are not food secure. And she makes decent food. How many people here think Tammy makes decent food? Yeah, okay. Big, big, there's a big kudo there for you, okay? And I have watched children look at it and go, I want a hot dog. I'm going like, what is in your mind, kid? Or I don't like that. And, and, because, and they refuse, even though they're hungry, they will refuse to eat it because it is not their way. Period. And they throw it away. How about a phrase like, look out for whom? Number one. Look out for number one. Is that restricted to earthly things? Yeah. There's no room for God. There's no room for anything else but Number one, false wisdom is earthly. False wisdom is also unspiritual. It is of the natural man. It relates only to unsaved fallen man who is separated from God. And Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians when he writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. False wisdom is of natural man. It is a person who does not understand the things of God. When we talk about being Christ followers and stuff like this, and we so desperately want our loved ones and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers to understand who Christ is, and we uh, try to give them good advice about, biblical advice about family and about children and about parenting and about finances and all this stuff that we find very practically in the Bible, and they look at us sometimes with blank faces, and they go, I don't get it. Why? Because they cannot discern that this is what God has created things to be. They're limited in what they can see and what they perceive in life. False wisdom caters to feelings, desires, appetites, and standards of life that view man as being the measure of all things. It is unspiritual in nature. False wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and lastly, it is demonic. It is demonic. Although it is human, earthbound, and fleshly, the root source is Satan himself. And Satan has always promised a better wisdom than God's. Always. Satan says, I have a better idea. And if we go back all the way to uh, Genesis chapter 3, and we see Satan coming to Eve, and what, is, what does Satan tell Eve? That God is right? Is that what he says? Listen to what... He says to Eve, for God knows, this is Satan talking to Eve, for God knows that when you eat of your, uh, eat, and that's the fruit that she shouldn't have eaten, of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the point there is, what's the point? In other words, if she did what God had forbidden, she would become like God himself. She would understand things that God was keeping hidden from her. It was then that the lie, man can be his own God, was born. And millions upon millions have believed it, just like Eve did. And Paul warns Timothy, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 
A lot of times when we say it's demonic, everybody gets their visions of their heads, you know, of exorcisms and, and dark uh, houses and all kinds of symbols. That, that's, that's not what we're talking about here, being demonic. Being demonic is talking about it is this um, lostness and it is our, ability, our want as fallen human beings before we're saved to have it our own way, to live for ourselves and have us be the focus. And Satan comes in, okay, and he plays on that. He tempts us, just like he did Eve, to say, hey, listen, you can be something that we really can never be. Your wisdom, you can have wisdom like God. You can have wisdom that's better than God because God should have told you not to eat of that tree. And so it's demonic in nature. Paul was so right in his warning to Timothy. False wisdom appeals to our natural fallenness and arrogant self-interest, and Satan knows this and plays to our weaknesses. False wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It is a malignant infection that will continue until the Lord returns in judgment. Christ followers have been given the Holy Spirit who helps them discern the error of false wisdom, but he only does this through God's word. Folks, this is where we find godly wisdom. This is where we find it. He helps us understand the world. He helps us understand life. He helps us understand every part of our lives in his word. If you don't know God's word, you cannot act or behave according to godly wisdom. You can't do it unless you know his word. It's not like, we're, it's not like he's going to, um, I'm a sci-fi fan. And when I was a kid, I read a, a, about a young boy who, I won't go through, the whole, he, he ended up in a place and he couldn't speak with the aliens. And so the aliens hooked him up to this machine and they implanted into his head their language. And when he woke up, wow, I can understand everything. Sometimes that's how we want God to work with us, isn't it? I need to know how to, how to act godly. And we say, oh, Lord God, give me the way, give me uh, how I should act right now. We kind of want to hook ourselves up to the machine and go, okay, hey, oh, man, that's good. I know how to do that. And God says, uh-uh, I've already given you the ability to do that. I've given you the ability to discern that. How? Through his word. We must know God's word. It must be in our hearts and minds so the Holy Spirit can use it to help us discern between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And James then helps us see that the false wisdom always leads toward something. Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And what he gives us here are the results of false wisdom. The results of false wisdom. He restates at the beginning of that, he kind of wrap, wraps his back to how he, uh, where he studies. He says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. Where that exists, which is where? All over the face of the earth, okay? He says, this is what's going to follow. Where this false wisdom exists, you're going to have disorder and vile practices. Disorder and vile practices. These words are broad terms that cover a multitude of bad results that are too numerous to list. These results would certainly include anger, bitterness, resentment, lawsuits, divorce, racial, ethnic, social, and economic divisions, and a host of other personal and social disorders. They also include the absence of love, intimacy, trust, and fellowship, and harmony. The basic idea of disorder is instability. And this idea includes things like being in a state of confusion, disarray, and even anarchy. And it's easy to see that false wisdom pervades the world today. Do we see disorder in the world today throughout the world? A lot of times we personalize this and we say, well, I don't see it in my life or I don't. Just look around. We have sex abuse. We have child trafficking throughout the world. We have governments abusing and collapsing all around us. We have wars starting because of selfish ambition. We see this disorder, and it's all because of this false wisdom. It is men and women saying, this is what I perceive is right. This is what I want. This is where I'm going to take my life. This is how I'm going to lead the people that I lead, and I, follow me. And it's all earthly. 
And how many times does that disorder lead to vile practices? How many of you have, we could have a whiteboard up here and we could start listing the vile practices that we know goes on in the world. How long before the whiteboard would be filled? And we wouldn't even have to try. This is the world we live in. This is the world that God has asked us to be lights in. You see, we're not supposed to be characterized. We're going to struggle. We're still sinful folk. But God has given us a a way through the Holy Spirit and dwelling in the Holy Spirit to grow and to change and to make these things uh, less and less in our lives and grow more and more into godly wisdom, which, by the way, we talk about next week. But we have to understand, this, this is the world we live in. This is the world that we're supposed to reach. This is the world that we will only reach if they see us different in behavior. Period. If we look like the world, the world has no need for Jesus Christ. If we behave like the world, the world has no need for Jesus Christ because we look exactly like them. And I'm not saying that we wear black pants and white shirt. I don't like those. You see that I, I don't dress like that. And we carry big black Bibles away and speak with these and thous. That's not what we're talking about. Our priorities, our hearts, why we exist, why we breathe, why we make plans, why we raise our families the way that we do. All these things are impacted by our salvation in Jesus Christ and living in godly wisdom. And we should be categorically different in how we live our lives than the rest of the world. Sometimes we can do that without persecution. Sometimes we can do that with no problems and people still like us. And sometimes the world does not understand it. The world hates it. And we're going to be persecuted. And by God's grace, living in America, we haven't had to deal with that for hundreds of years. But it's going around all across the whole, the whole world right now. When we look at the world today, we see that the disorder and how that disorder brings in vile practices and they play off of each other. But we're supposed to be different. James has been making a very clear point. Absolutely nothing of any ultimate good results from false wisdom. Nothing of ultimate good results from false wisdom. And so it is time for us to look in the mirror. But before I do, I want to make sure that we don't forget that looking in the mirror each week is a privilege and not a curse. I have had so many comments, emails, rolled eyes, people coming by me, thanks for stepping on my feet again, Pastor Mark. But the reason why I'm getting so many comments, because when we are forced to look in the mirror, when we're forced to evaluate our life against what God's Word says, when we're forced to say, where am I at, there's some times that we don't like what we see. We have two options. We can see blemishes because we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and we're going to have blemishes. And the purpose of looking in the mirror is to evaluate our life and find the blemishes, find the things where we're not doing what we should be doing, and to do what? Pray about it study the Word of God, and begin to change and grow in those things. And we have the ability to do that as Christians. The other way we look into, into the, the mirror is we look in the mirror and there aren't blemishes. The mirror reflects back who we really are. This is characteristic of my life. This is who I am. This is what I live for. This is, and what that tells us is we do not know Jesus Christ. There's two ways to look in that mirror. If you are here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you see blemishes, that's okay. We don't want to hide the blemish. We want to deal with it. But then, and so if, if you are there, let me just plead with you, don't take this as a curse that you have to look in the mirror because of what James is teaching. It is a privilege because it is God helping us understand where we need to go, how we need to grow. It is Him moving us to more Christ-likeness. It is Him giving us more purpose in life. It is making us fall greater in love with Him and being greater lights and witnesses to the world around us. However, if you look in there and you say, this is what I see. I live for the world. I live for the things of the world. Everything I hope for, all my dreams are earthly-centered and grounded on earth. Then according to the passage we read this morning, it is based on false wisdom because eventually it will all go away anyway. All the effort, everything that we did, 
will be gone. There is no, nothing to, to, to make it worthwhile because once we die, okay, we're not going to be with Christ. And so, I'm have you bow your heads here for just a minute. Let me ask you this question as Michelle just plays for just a second. Is your life characterized by false wisdom as defined by God's Word? Look in the mirror. If you are a Christ follower, God has made provision. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is such a care and comfort for us because we understand God knows we're going to struggle and he has provided a way for us to confess and to be right with him again. And so if you are here today and you are a Christ follower, you claim to be a Christ follower, then you can go before God and say, Lord, my life isn't what it should be as I claim to be a Christ follower because I live for the world and I don't live for you. I live for what I see and what I feel is right and wrong instead of what you feel and what you say is right and wrong. Confess that. And God will be faithful enough and forgive you for that. And then begin to study, to read God's Word, to grow. If you're a Christ follower here or you claim to be a Christ follower, and you have no desire for spiritual things, none, then we saw in James, there is no assurance of salvation. There's no assurance of salvation if your life is earthly focused, false wisdom. There is no assurance of salvation. And then if you say, God's opened my eyes, He has spoke to my heart, and I don't like what I see. I don't want to just have my life restricted to earthly wisdom that leads to deception and vileness and disorder. Then I would like to talk to you at any time, not to browbeat you into accepting Jesus Christ, but just to answer your questions, to help you understand what salvation is and answer questions that hopefully will help you understand who Jesus Christ is. And then pray that God would open your heart and your mind to believe what He says. Father God, we all come to You from different places and uh, different points of view. And Lord, but help us to understand that godly living, godly behavior patterns, will all be seen, all of us will grow in them. And Father, if we're not growing, if we're not changing, if we're not desiring you more and more, Father, convict us. Draw us to yourself. In Christ's name, amen.